0: Okay. What we're going to look at today is um, a new series. As you will know, we have finished that mammoth treatise of two years of teaching through the Book of Romans. So, what I thought I was going to do, what I thought I would do, would be to um, just have a what I call a mini-series. I'm not too sure how many messages this will take, but it won't be two years. Um, it'll be a lot shorter than that. And uh, on a topic, but uh, and again, as you know, it won't be topical preaching as we hear so much of in our um, church circles. It'll be topical, but it'll be expository, I hope. So we will be looking at uh, this subject that I've called Living the Changed Life, and we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2 and 3, but today we're just going to have a look at a few verses in, um, in chapter 2. And uh, if you would turn to with me in your Bibles uh, to Colossians chapter 2 and we'll pick up at verse 6. We'll read right through to the end of verse 15. I won't be exegeting all this text but just be picking out a couple of verses, namely verses 13 and 14, which we'll base our uh, message on uh, this morning. So follow with me please. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 Paul is speaking here to the believers at the Colossae church and uh, he has exhorted them uh, with some wonderful truths of doctrine which we have many, many years ago gone through this book verse by verse and, um, and uh, being Paul the theologian and rightly so um, before he gets to the practical side of Christian life he teaches them the doctrine. Okay, we love to get to the practice side, but a lot of us don't like the doctrine. But in order to be practically right, we must base it on doctrine, right? And so, I'm just assuming—and forgive me if I've assumed too much—that you sort of know some of the fundamentals of what um, Colossians is all about. But for the sake of our mini-series, we're going to be picking up at verse six of chapter two. Therefore. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude verse 8 see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ for in him all the fullness of the deity of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority verse 11 and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having completely triumphed over them through him. God added a blessing to his word. And so, with that introduction uh, of this short series called, the title as you say, Living the Changed Life, you may say, what do you mean by changed? And when I mean changed, I mean a a change that, that flows out of a change of heart. A change of heart Not that we have made, but a change of heart that God has initiated and implemented. A big theological word is a a change that God has regenerated. Our salvation. And so this spiritual change that God has began in us, it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be fed, so that ongoing change will be something that's active in our lives. Change in lifestyle, and from what we once were before we were saved, changing from the the world's ways, can we say another way, to God's ways. And so not only is it vital for believers to see the areas of life that they need to change in, that I need to change in myself, but we also need to say, see why we need to change. I love the verse that the Apostle Paul uh, spoke to the Corinthians when he said, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he said, But we all with unveiled face, and again he's speaking to believers here, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's the word change, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Now that transformed word there is an ongoing word. Okay? It's something that hasn't happened and then it's forgotten about. It's something that continues. Another word we might use is is our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing change into Christ-likeness. And so, as we know, genuine believers have had an eternal heart change. We have. We have received new hearts. We have received cleansed hearts. Hearts and minds, which are synonymous. Um, We have those hearts and minds now that seek after God. And uh, this God-given engine, I call it, an engine of the Holy Spirit that, that prompts our uh, us to think about changing and, and prompts us to think about our, our new goals and, and our actions, our behaviour, and uh, an engine that, that prompts us on how we should relate or are relating to other people. An engine that prompts us to think: How should we conduct ourselves in the workplace? These are some of the areas that we will get into and look at. But you might be saying right now, "Oh, is that so? Is that the kind of change that you, I should be?" Well, how come I'm no different? Well, how come I'm not as different as I'd want to be? Or well, how come I'm changed? I'm not as changed as I want to be. But well, let me encourage you, folks, these changes, they, do not have, they don't happen overnight. And, um, but change is an ongoing, effective work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our lives, this is why the Word of God is so important in our lives. As the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our lives and to our, our willing, humble hearts, we will change. And so if you're concerned about a lack of change, maybe you need to look within to see how willing you are to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit of God as He applies the Word of God to your heart and life. But then again, you might ask another question, well, really, why should I change? Why should I submit to and obey the Holy Spirit which may cost me heaps of personal comfort it may cost me some personal preferences that I have. It probably costs me a lot of time, whatever else. What will I gain as a believer if I take changing and conforming to the person of Jesus Christ? What will it cost me, or what will I gain if I take this change seriously? Now this is a question that many believers get tangled in. And they get all confused on And I need to make it very clear that believers do not, or they should not, even though many think that they can, they do not change and conform to Christ's Christ's likeness and God's ways and as a result of their humanly energised change earn God's favour and grace and blessing. They do not do that. We change and conform, as believers, we change and conform Because we already have God's abundant grace and blessing, period. That's why we change. A believer cannot earn any more favour, blessing or stamps of divine acceptance than they already have right now. We have this in verse 6. The moment you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the believer has it all, forever. Forever. Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that God in Christ has, notice the past tense in that verse, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Past tense. There is no more redemptive grace to be had. There is no more acceptance of God to be had. We already have it all. It's a sealed Holy Spirit promised deal. We have that further down that first passage, that chapter of Ephesians. But here's where it gets better. Here's where it gets better. Not only are we fully blessed and accepted by God, we're also fully empowered. We're fully empowered with all we need. The believer is fully empowered by God with all he or she needs to navigate through life and live a changed, transformed life life the way God desires of us. We are given, can I say, the wherewithal, the power, the heart change, the divine engines that enables us all as believers to walk in Him as we see in that first verse we read, verse 6, we have it all. We don't need a second blessing or an extra dose of God's grace. Paul says this in verses um, 9 and 10. For in him that we read for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him or you have been made complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Past tense. It's been given to us. Peter reminds us all of the same truth in his second epistle when he says in chapter 1 verse 3 his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. For your everyday life and for your spiritual life in other words for life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, we're called to change and conform and be transformed into like Christ's likeness and God's power to do so is the holy indwelling spirit of God now a good question at this point is well what does or what should those changes look like in my everyday life if I'm meant to change what should what should I Look like? What should I be doing or not be doing? How should I behave in every area of life? Well, we're going to get to that, but not today, okay? Because I believe first we need to establish a biblical foundation for change. I could give you a message and say, okay, go out there and do this, do that, but that's not biblical, okay? We need to understand, and a change needs to come from a right foundation. And so I want to consider this morning a couple of verses that remind us why we need to change or, or why we should change. And the first one point I've got here is why I need to live a changed life. You know, as I was thinking about this, often as time moves on, and just having a birthday last week, I was reminded forcibly again that time does move on, um... Things that we once held precious and those things that we highly valued can become somewhat dim. they lose their gloss, so to speak and this happens in many ways in all areas of life as the years go by, as the decades go by this year this year actually in, um, in May, the month of May, Valma and I—she'll be arriving back from New Zealand on Tuesday, God willing—we've um, been married 40 years, and I, think, I guess someone, others in here, that could could top that off. But we've married 40 years this year, and um, do I still love her? Absolutely. No gloss loss there, folks. No gloss loss. <laughs> uh, do I remember the wedding day? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I remember the details of the wedding day? How I would really like to? No, not really. Not really. And do I remember the level of excitement? The buildup, you know, the, the waiting and, um, and all that kind of stuff. The gifts, the exchange of rings and vows. Do I remember all that? Kind of, but only dimly. Time does that, right? Time does that. It tends to take the gloss of things in the past. But I have something. Believe me, I have something. <laughs> it's not a magic tool, but I have something that powerfully flashes our wedding day into my mind like a bolt of lightning, like as of it were yesterday. Jordan and Jenny, you want to make sure you get one of these, Okay? Okay? First bit of pre marital counselling. Get one of these. Okay? It'll cost you, but you need to get one. Have a photo album. Get a photo album. You see, when I gaze at my photo album, I not only remember the wife of my youth, but I recall the details, the excitement, the people, the happenings, the guests, those those details that being asked would be completely lost on me. You see, that day and that time in my life is refreshed, it's renewed in my mind, whereby I have a further reason to praise God and thank Him for my wife and for my marriage. So folks, the two verses I want to focus on this morning in this book of Colossians are going to be like our photo album this morning. We need this because like anything else our salvation, believe it or not our salvation, the foundation of that can lose its sense of joy and awe and it can often fade and lose its gloss. It can, it really can. That's why I love the Lord's Supper that we have every two weeks here because it can refresh us. It's like a photo album. Or it should be. It's not that we no longer appreciate our salvation or that we are not grateful to God because we are, right? We really are. But how we need to keep on being changed and transformed in the present, founded on what Jesus Christ has done for us in the past. That's what it's all about. That's why it's good to linger over some of these verses like one would a photo album. And so may these verses ignite in us a flame that... that that changes us and transforms us into Christ's likeness. Right, the first picture that I want you to look at this morning uh, is in verse 13, and um, this may be a picture that many people don't like to see. Matter of fact, people would try and distort this picture to make it out that it's not something. You know how you can go to this computer these days, you can Photoshop, and the big pimple that's on your face, you can gloss it out and make yourself look beautiful. Well, Sad to say, many preachers and churches have a philosophy whereby they would try and Photoshop this picture here. It's one of the most vivid pictures this morning in our photo album that should put, can I say, fire in every believer's belly and a dreaded fear of God to every unbeliever here this morning. Because this is a picture that shows us our spiritual condition apart from Christ in our life. The first thing Paul tells us about about every person apart from Christ is that they are spiritually dead. He says we were dead in trespasses or in uh, transgressions or our sins in another word. We were dead in them. He says the same thing when he addresses the, the Ephesian church. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince and the power of the air. Dead folks is dead, right? You got the picture? No light. Not even a wriggle. Dead. Now I like the illustration. You back in the Old Testament, who was that guy, the He was that he was that son whom the nurse took out when David became king and they all thought he was going to get knocked off as well, and his nurse took him out and dropped him, and he was lame on his feet. And when Saul came to power he put out the word Who 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 is left of Saul's house that I may show favour to. Oh, yeah, there is one person, a guy named Mephibosheth. Go and get him. Go and get him. Pretty scary, huh? Maybe he thought he was going to get knocked off. But he brought Mephibosheth into his table, and there, <coughs> till the day he died, I believe, he was welcomed as a guest to eat with the king at the king's table. But upon being presented with this glorious privilege of fellowship with the king, Mephibosheth said something like this Who am I, a dead dog, that you should show grace to him? He knew that he was dead to the king. But because of David's grace, it's a beautiful picture here. And so here we were, here we were, once as believers, we were spiritually dead. Paul does not say by the way that we were handicapped. He doesn't say, he doesn't photoshop this picture here and say that we were kind of uh, sick of it. You know, part of us was sick. He did not say that we were just misguided by our social surroundings. No. He says that we were dead without any spiritual life at all. We had good doses of this, by the way, when we were way back in Romans chapter 3, remember? Where the verse says that there is none righteous, not even one, there is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 12. This was our spiritual condition. And that should remind us that apart from the mercy and the grace of God, apart from God's merciful intervention, sinners are hopelessly destined for divine judgment. We were under condemnation and considered by God as dead to Him. You see the vivid picture here? We were not only able to return to God, there was no desire within us, no natural disposition that we had to turn to God. As theologians call this, we were totally depraved outside of Christ. Meaning that there was nothing in us that could affect or initiate or begin our own salvation. Absolutely nothing. This is why Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. That's why he said that. Because he knew exactly our spiritual condition. You see, the Lord of his own sovereign will initiates a work of grace in dead-to-God people. And that's who we once were, folks. That's who we once were. That's why Jesus said those amazing words in John chapter 3. You must be born again. What he's inferring here is that as you had no personal involvement, I'm sure I didn't anyway, and I had, we have no personal involvement in bringing about our physical birth you have no personal involvement either in bringing about and initiating and beginning your spiritual birth. (coughs) What a grave danger all sinners face, folks. A grave danger. dead to God and being on a road to a lost eternity. And that's where we as believers once were. Do you see this old photo of yourself? May our old dead to God picture kindle a spark of gratitude in us all. sure has me this week. That it would ignite a flame that is bent on living a changed life for God. Our second picture is to um, see what God has done. He, he's made us alive. We'll see this in the second part of verse 13. Now the photo album that we have before us kind of shifts in focus somewhat. The focus is not on ourselves, but it's on God, right? We've had, a, we've had a look, enough looking at ourselves. And it's not too nice. But praise God, there's grace. But here we see it focuses on God. You see, he is the one who makes sinners alive. He is the one who forgives transgressions. The one who cancels our debt of sin. The one who defeated the powers of hell through Christ. He is the one. You see, folks, unless God intervenes on our behalf, we will not turn to Christ... We will not be forgiven and we will not be born again and we will not be set free from spiritual death. It will not happen unless Christ intervenes. But God in his love and mercy, what does it say here? What has he done? He has made you alive together with him. That's great news, right? That's great news. Another word that we use here and you can use and get used to using it, he has regenerated us. We have been born again as described in, by Jesus in John chapter 3, what we mentioned. Or, this is another way that I put it, and these words come from an old mentor of mine, we have passed through the hands of the Creator a second time. God has made us alive. He's made us alive. He has gone to work on our spiritual dead condition and, and, and He's... And he's involved himself in a divine makeover on each one of us. And that makeover began in our hearts and has produced for his glorious grace and for his glory new creatures, new, eternal, liberated sinners for his glory. We have that in Ephesians 1. You see, God did not just help us, folks. He didn't help us to change to get where we are, no way, God did not wait for us, as it were, to take the first step like some would teach and believe. no no, he on his own initiative, he made us alive, He changed us, He created us in us new life, life from himself. You now I have come to deeply value these doctrines of how God changed me over the years, deeply value them. You know, Ephesians two, verse eight and nine says it all as far as I'm concerned. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, folks, even our faith, the faith that we exercise in God toward in Jesus Christ, was something that God gave us. He is responsible for our salvation. He alone makes it possible for you and I to be a child of God. In the Reformation, one of the great cries was, sola gratia, meaning grace alone. And this is what Paul emphasizes here. We can do nothing to change from a sinner to saint. We can not do nothing. And every truly born again believer, every true believer is a saint in God's eyes. And so we may ask, well why is this important? Because There are so many good, and I know a whole heap of them, good people, so many good religious people today who have this idea that we're redeemed or we receive God's favour because of what we do or what they do, not because of what Christ does in us. If you are not a believer here today, you need to have this change that God alone can bring because that's the only hope of your salvation. God may well be working in your heart right now for all I know. And I trust and hope and pray it is. He will work in your heart without listen to this, He will work in your heart without violating your will. God sovereignly and effectually regenerates a person's natural heart and causes them, listen to this, and He causes them to willingly and gladly turn to God in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's what He does. Salvation is a work of God. May we as believers see afresh the beauty of God's glorious change in us. And the next picture we're going to see is um, the third part of verse 13 and we'll see that God's action of forgiveness... And we'll see that he forgives all our friends. Not just some of them, all of them. Past, present and future. All of them. You got that? Now the religious dilemma of mankind generally, whether they're religious or irreligious, eventually, or inevitably, can I say, it rolls around to the forgiveness of sins. They might turn that differently, but that's where it'll inevitably roll around to. You know, once upon a time, back in the scriptures, a group of blinded religious Jesus, uh, re- blinded religious leaders asked Jesus, "Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Remember that? Yeah, you know, they were correct in that questioning statement because only God can forgive sins. For those who are dead in your transgressions and it says here and the uncircumcision of your flesh and if you're tangled up on that what that means is a reference to Jewish people okay for those who are dead in your transgressions forgiveness of sins needs to rank as a priority in your life it really does people religious or irreligious they go all out of all the scriptures of all Beliefs of all worldviews. They will go all out and do whatever they can to try and deal with their wrongdoing, their transgressions, their past life, their future life, or whatever it be. They'll try and put themselves in some area where God or gods will think kindly of them and it all comes down to their sinful life. You see, but to be forgiven really is a joy that is beyond compare. It really is. Yeah, the psalmist, he learned this. And um, he came to the conclusion that he wrote down one day, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. What a wonderful thing it is to rejoice now. We have that in Psalm 32, verse 1. You see, to be forgiven is to have all our rebellion, all our stepping over, the, over God's law. That's what it is. Stepping over the boundary of God's law is to have all that forgiven and never ever to be held against us again. Never. This word forgiven here that we have in our text, by the way, is not the normal word for forgiven. This word carries with it the idea that we are forgiven on the basis of God's favour, His pure, absolute grace. In other words, our forgiveness does not depend on how positive or committed or how good we feel about being forgiven. We do not come into this release from the bondage of sin by by some psychological manipulation. No way. Nor do we come into this release through some emotionally charged experience that can be so easily pumped up by eloquent men and women. Around our world, no way. This release only. This comes through God's action. It's God's prerogative, folks. It's God's prerogative for, to forgive. But of course, there is a cost to forgiveness. Do you realize that? There is a cost to forgiveness. You know this. You see, God, being just, He's a just God. Will only ever ever deal with sin appropriately. And the price that God's law, God's just law, demands for sin has always been the death of the sinner. Even right back in the garden, he told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, that forbidden fruit, you will die. It's one of those fundamental principles, it's one of the fundamental law of God. Because God is just, sin must be dealt with appropriately. And he doesn't change his mind on this. But for your sin and my sin, there's still a cost. God says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so God's law demands payment for sin. The wages of sin is death. But praise God, Jesus willingly, listen to this, willingly, he became our substitute. All our sins were laid upon him. And there at Calvary, on the cross, God Dealt with him as if he were the sinner. He stood in our place. Isn't that awesome? Dear people, gaze at the picture this morning. Gaze at the photo. A picture of Christ Jesus on the cross. For he alone is your source of forgiveness. the next picture we will see God's action in cancelling our sentence. And that it was nailed to the cross. We see this in verse 14. And it says this, Having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know, one of the most hostile and debilitating conditions any person can be plagued with, I honestly believe, is guilt. Guilt condemns us, doesn't it? It hangs over us. It's like this, it's really like a plague. Guilt can eat away at the mental and emotional state of our lives until we are thoroughly miserable. And no doubt many have even committed suicide because of guilt. It affects the way we look at life, it affects the way we relate to other people, and the way we view ministry even as believers in the church. We find no joy in worship. When guilt plagues us. We block out, we ignore, we reject the preaching of the word, that's what happens. And we choose an easy way out, escapism, I call it, where we may be escaping to somewhere else. To the TV, to watch a tele evangelist, maybe, rather than going here, that preacher that preaches from the word that really convicts us, that makes us feel guilty. Guilt of sin can do that to a person. And a whole lot more folks, it really can. And, and this was probably what was happening here at Colossae, in this ancient church that we have in, our, in, in the text here. Their pagan backgrounds, and it sure was pagan, and, and all the past debauchery that they were involved in of that day, it was weighing heavily upon these believers. They were believers, they were true, born again believers. And, and they were plagued with guilt that rightly condemned them. But to make matters worse on this occasion, to make matters worse, we've only touched on it, and not going to be speaking on it, there was a whole lot of false teachers coming and and pushing their their doctrine, and and philosophers of every description, and they came along with their self-help recipe. Yes, believe in Jesus, but on top of that, you must do this, do this, and do this, and do this. And then it might be okay. That's the kind of thing that they were would, they would doing. And, and all this did was, was make them feel terribly guilty and, and the condemnation that they, they, they felt was weighing upon them became a heavy burden of shame. Now folks, how on earth were these people to deal with their guilt? This is how they were to deal with it. It's a no-brainer. It's in the text here, very clear. They were to look. They were to see the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. They were to see their condemnation. This condemnation that loaded them up with guilt. They were to see it as a certificate. okay? They were to see it as a a legal document, a legal sentence. And they were to see it being taken and nailed to the cross. The cross of Jesus. You may not have known this, but In the first century Roman rule, under Roman law, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were crucified. For capital crimes. And the law was that when a person was crucified, a legal document was nailed to the cross above them, describing their crime. This was mockingly done, if you remember. Mockingly done of Jesus when he was now the cross, right? What was written above his cross? Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was his cross, supposedly. You see, folks, but our debt, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, there it is, there's the legal document, there's in all its truth all our sins, our transgressions, and, 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 and yes, we, 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 were, we were condemned by God, What happened to that document? What happened to that decree that condemned us? This guilt-indicting document that named all our crimes and all our sin against the Holy God? That verdict that was that was so hostile against us? I'm going to hang a fool that was there. You know what it was? Happened to it? It was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. It was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, and Jesus, our Lord, in dying for the in our place, as our substitute, he paid the price for our transgressions in his substitutionary death at Calvary. That's what he did. And in doing so, what did he do? He cancelled all the debt of sin that we had that was rightfully charged against us. That's why a believer can, it can sing and shout and jump the door. Yeah, we can't do that, you know. Our debt is cleared forever. There is nothing... No past, present, or future sin that will ever be held against us. That's what this means. There is now no condemnation, as we're told in Romans 8, 8 verse 1. The hymn writer once coined, Free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Do you get the picture, folks? Do you see the detail of this vital, necessary transaction? To bring about God's redemptive change in you. See, because God's condemnation against us has been fully cancelled, any guilt we as believers have is because of sin, yes. But you know what? We're exhorted in 1 John, 1 John 1 9. As the believers who sin, we're to flee to the cross. And there, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and cleanse from all unrighteousness. There is no condemnation. Yes, our feet get dirty on the way, but we're to bring it to the Lord and it's dealt with. We're not condemned any longer. May we rest in this abundant sufficiency of what he has accomplished at the cross. What a sufficient saviour we have, right? And what an awesome redemption that we've been brought into. So what are we to do, in closing now, what are we to do In light of these word pictures that we have looked at this morning. Firstly, can I suggest that these word pictures might stir a flame in us that ignites a deeper love for Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. Secondly, that our love for the Lord that so easily loses its gloss. And believe you me, I know it can lose its gloss. Might it be reignited by the Spirit of God. So that we can live changed lives like we've never lived them before. Being motivated because of what Christ has done for us. Not because the partner said, this is what you should do. Or someone else said, this is what you should be and how and and, and so forth. May it be founded founded on what Christ has done. Let us all continue to dwell upon the great and sufficiency of our little joyous Jesus. Let us all continue to... Consider that apart from God's intervention, we were hopelessly dead and unable to improve our spiritual condition. Let us all continue to glory in the God-centeredness of our salvation. And as we look in the following weeks at changing, and what that change looks like, or should look like, may we change to live daily in the light of the glorious triumph of Jesus Christ at the cross. I have to say this, but what about anyone who might be an unbeliever still? Can I urge you to face the reality of your spiritual dead condition before God? Look to Jesus Christ, trusting in his God satisfying death, because he did satisfy God in dying for us. Because he is the only way to deliver you from your sin. And come to him believing.